We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Returning guest Jim Forrest is an author, photographer, peace activist, and friend. He's the author of numerous books, including most recently, Writing Straight with Crooked Lines, a memoir. He serves as International Secretary of the Orthodox Peace Fellowship, and he lives in Alkmaar, the Netherlands, with his wonderful wife, Nancy. Musician Joan Baez writes of Jim's latest book, Jim, My Brother in Nonviolent Arms, writes beautifully about his dedication to truth, love, and activism. I was lucky enough to meet Jim a few years ago when we crossed paths at Voices for Peace in Toronto and then reconnected in the Netherlands. He and his wife, Nancy, graciously hosted me, housed me, fed me, and most importantly, nurtured me spiritually. And put up with you. (laughs) There's that too. You're right. The more Jim and I have talked, I realize that he has shown me the power and importance of relationship and activist work. He is a man who seems to be connected at the heart to all people. Beloved Jim Forrest, welcome to the podcast. And hello, Nancy. Hi. 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 Good to see you. You too. So, Jim, where in your world these days during pandemic have you found meaningful places of silence or locations of silence? I live in a place of silence, more or less. Our house, for various reasons, I'm not only COVID-19, but because of some problems with my back, I'm basically a housebound person at the moment. So my quiet place is where I live. And I'm, but that, that's nothing unusual. That's where I've been doing a lot of my meditating and for many years. We have an icon corner. Has silence taken on, taken on any new meanings or feelings recently? I recently finished writing a little book about Thich Nhat Hanh. Vietnamese Buddhist monk, poet, Zen master. And I guess while writing that, I began to think how big a place silence takes in his life. I lived with him for off and on for over a number of years. And uh, I realized that his words float on silence. And that silence is an important part of what we, of conversation. It's not just the words, it's the spaces between the words, which can be very short or that sometimes they can be quite long, but it's, it's very refreshing when you hear somebody speaking who isn't just pumping out words, but gives you little spaces. Nathan does that. I think it's one of the reasons why I enjoy listening to his voice so much. I remember when I first met him, I said to a mutual friend, you know, I could listen to this guy read from the telephone book. And I would be refreshed. (laughs) So I'm working in that direction. I'd like to get a little bit more silence (laughs) in in me. I love in in your book of Thich Nhat Hanh, you write, of of your most recent book, your memoir, you write, his voice was as gentle as a wind bell. 
He spoke slowly, carefully, and sparingly. I was impressed by the silences he placed between words and phrases. Yes. Attentive, wide open eyes, unguarded. And you said, as I imagine the eyes of Jesus or Buddha might be. I just love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the better sentences. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful book. Wonderful book. Well, I love the uh, idea of, in that phrase of, of unguarded. And as, as you said, Jim, that how many times have we been in conversation with people and it is just them wanting to say something and, and it's, I need to say this really fast, either A, before I forget it or B, before you cut me off or, and it, and it, you feel the kind of, you know, I dare say it, it feels a little violent unintentionally. It comes at you like, here's my words and here's who I think I am and here's who I'm projecting myself and what you've just described, I've I've heard Titna Khan's talks. I didn't meet him personally. I saw him in a public space. I was uh, in a gathering, and I was about five rows away from him, so I was close. And this was about I don't know, about twenty years ago. So yes, it, this vulnerability, not trying to be anybody or anything, just being present and every word carefully just chosen for us and offered. It's. Profound. One of our daughters, our our youngest daughter Anna, I know she. I don't know if she's still doing this, but she has a collection of uh, tapes, uh, DVD. I guess CDs of of, of, of Thai of Thich Nhat Hanh, and she would listen to them going to sleep at night. Yeah, you know, it, yeah. It, it's something where you can can enter deeply into the silence and fall asleep in the silence and be refreshed and wake up very refreshed. That's that was my experience as well. And what's funny is that talk I went to, I brought my father. My father is a, a deacon in the church, a permanent deacon, but a huge fan of uh, Titnak Khan. And when I told him I had these tickets, we went. And, and I remember we're sitting there and I told, he says, how long are we going to be here? And I said, uh, I think this is supposed to be a three-hour event. And he looked at me very scared. Like, I can't sit here in these seats. These seats are very uncomfortable. I can't sit here for three hours. And so Titnakan comes out and bows to us and sits down, and then they put a microphone next to him, and he starts gently talking. And then all of a sudden, the event's over, and my fa I looked to my father, and he, i not kidding you, he looks down at his watch, and as he looks down, the look of absolute shock... <laughs> Oh my God! Th how did three hours go by? <laughs> and he was like, "That was amazing. I, I could do another three. <laughs> so yeah. And now Jim cannot speak anymore. He's lost his voice. He has no voice. I know. He can only communicate with have, gestures. Do you do you have any contact with him now? He's back in Vietnam, isn't he? Yeah, he's in, in the monastery that he originally joined when he was 16 years old hmm. in Hue, central Vietnam. Do you communicate so, by letter or? I haven't communicated with him. He writes very few letters. Yeah, I'm one of the few people who even has a letter from Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I remember some of the sketches you showed me in your journals that he he would draw in, on your paper when you were in meetings yeah, together yeah, and you'd sit yeah, side yeah. by side? He would do calligraphy and explain how a certain word was formed in Chinese characters and the evolution of the characters. Or he would, one, one of my favorite drawings by him is 
he said, this is what the hippies should wear. He wrote that at the top <laughs> of the page. And then he did drawings of Vietnamese peasant clothing. Mm. He said, you know, he said, it's very easy to make, very durable, little fabric, needle and thread, you're, you're set. Thai, Vietnamese word for teacher, Thai is a person who communicates in a, in a variety of ways, but one of them is visually. He likes to do calligraphy, likes to do drawings. And he liked my drawings too, so we would sometimes collaborate on a page of drawings. What a treasure. Kevin, I, I want to go back to what your, your story about your dad, if, if we can, and, and maybe Jim can reflect on this. But, you know, I, I love that story, and I think it speaks to the relationship between silence and timelessness or eternity, and that perhaps when we move into contemplative silence, you know, the silence that is freely chosen and that is embraced, there's a level in which we're stepping outside of time. Uh, Jim, does that resonate with you at all? Would, the, would, would you say that's been part of your experience? One of, the, one of the important aspects of my own spirituality is the use of the Jesus prayer, which is a prayer of silence. Well, it can be, of course, it can be spoken. Sometimes whole communities will sit and recite the Jesus prayer together. But for me, it's mostly a prayer of silence. And it, it opens the door to silence. Of course, there are all kinds of silences. There are, there are silences which are very uncomfortable silences. There are dead silences. There are nervous silences. There are all kinds of silences, but there's a living silence. And I would even say there's a resurrection silence. And, and that's the one that interests me the most. You can find your way into the empty tomb <laughs> and be silent there. A monk of New Mallory Abbey in Iowa once said to me when I asked him what silence meant to him, he said, it is the tomb of Christ. It is the place of infinite possibility. And that always okay. stayed with me. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the Paschal icons is the icon of the, of the empty tomb. And, mm -hmm. you know, pe people who look at it may not realize that it's an invitation to, to be there. And indeed, Nancy and I were lucky enough during three months I was teaching near Jerusalem to go in quite often into the empty tomb. So it's both, it's both a metaphysical space and a physical space. It, it's everywhere and it's also right in the middle of Jerusalem. Speaking of other kinds of silence, certainly there's, you know, there's the toxic silence of not speaking up and speaking out and you are a peace activist and you've been arrested and you we're very outspoken about the Vietnam War and countless other things. And I, I wonder, in those kinds of situations, what, what made you both break the silence and what helped you maintain it as that, that centering, that knowing within? Dan Berrigan used to use the phrase occasionally, outraged love. Outraged love. And I think every now and then you get a case of outraged love. I hope it's love. I hope it's not just rage. If yeah. outrage, outrage without the love is not necessarily very helpful. But outraged love, what you say out of outraged love can be perhaps something that really clears the air and introduces a dimension of truth and crisis into the situation in which you find yourself. You know, you watch somebody being 
physically violated, whether by war or domestic violence or whatever. And you, you have to, you have to cry out. Um, you have to try to, if, if it's something where needed, where help is needed for many people, as in the case of war, a lot of people need to be mobilized. How to do it is, of course, an art. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe we're born with that art. I don't know. I mean, I look at the Black Lives Matter demonstrations and I see people saying brilliant things, brilliant things mm -hmm. out of their pain and anger. But things that are trying to create a different future. Yeah. An invitation to, to live a different way, see a different way. Jim, what would you say? I mean, you're friends, you, you were friends with incredible people, Dorothy Day, Dan Berrigan, Henry Nowen, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, Thomas Merton. And I'm struck by the fact that you deeply treat everyone equally and you deeply care about all people. And there's something of great value to you about relationship. And what would you say to activists today about the importance of relationship in, in activist work? Well, we're mostly having the problem of enmity. We live in a society in which there's a lot of enmity. It's, it's in the White House, it's in our homes, it's in our communities, it's, it's all over the place. People who are afraid of other people, people who are threatening other people. There has to be a desire to communicate. Not just to, not just to draw attention to your words, but to communicate. I think that has to undergird what we're, what we're attempting to do and would affect the way we look at other people. Um, and one of the things that disturbs me about the peace movement at the moment, or the, uh, say, social change movement, let's call it that, a social improvement movement, because we, we know it's, it's a lifetime work. One of the things that worries me is there's so much just plain old hatred, a lot of it directed toward the White House, toward the Oval Office, toward the occupant of the Oval, Oval Office. And I don't think hatred is going to change the tide. You know, I think the people who were moved to vote for him are our neighbors, are our relatives, are people surrounding us. And we have to, to look at them and look at the person whom they admire so much with compassion. It's difficult. Uh, I read a biography of Trump not long ago, just so I could get a more three-dimensional picture of, of Trump. And realize that he, what a wounded person he is and how much he needs our prayer. Jesus says, pray for your enemies. Well, he is an enemy. Have I been praying for him? Well, I think a lot of people would have to say probably not. No, not, not, not up to do. In fact, find it very difficult to even imagine doing so. But with the beginning of, uh, of change is probably prayer. And the beginning of relationships, developing relationships with people who are difficult to relate to is probably prayer. Once you start praying for somebody, there's a connection with that person. You begin to view that life differently. Begin to, you begin to invest hope. I would love to live long enough to see Trump living a penitent life. Mm. But he's a, you know, he's, he, he's a rich orphan. 
I don't think he experienced much love when he was growing up. He experienced things, but he didn't experience too much love. I'm just, I'm really struck by, right earlier you mentioned outraged love and that importance. And you're mentioning now that the way hate really doesn't work, but that this, how outraged love can work and, and the power of outraged love. Yeah. Of course, I'm here with several people who pray every day and probably pray not just for abstract topics, but for specific people. You probably have lists of names of people you don't want to forget. Add Trump to it. If you haven't already, you probably have. Have an enemies list. You know, Nixon had an enemies list. Well, we can have one too. <laughs> Ours is slightly different. His was a list of people to punish. Ours is a, people, is a list of people we're kind of hoping can be uh, uh, healed. This conversation on Encountering Silence will continue after a 30-second break of silence. Take a moment and breathe with us. You know, what's really powerful about this is I'm hearing your language and this discussion, this idea, which I completely feel pulled toward and agree, you know, this idea of relationship. As soon as you're praying for somebody, you're in relationship. And I recognize that uh, praying for my enemies, what ends up happening for me, I notice really quickly I don't know how other people feel, but I'm only going to speak for myself, that I notice that when I'm praying for, quote, my enemies, my enemy list, that's a great idea, by the way, I think I'm going to get one. (laughs) (laughs) If I'm going to pray for my enemies, what I'll notice really quickly is the parts of myself that uh, I see in my enemy. So uh, the, the selfishness, if I see somebody and I feel very selfish, I automatically there's a voice in my head that kind of says, come on, Kevin, don't be such a hypocrite. Where's your selfishness? (laughs) Like, it's a voice, I don't know if it's my own, if it's a voice inside my head that's a helpful voice or a harmful voice, but it always pulls me up and says, you know, you're pointing that finger pretty quick, Kev. And, And I'm very good at doing it. I point that finger pretty quick out there. And so to see like somebody like Trump or somebody that if they frustrate me to no end or it's just so much anger, I, I pulled up short often. And I think that's the relationship piece that you're talking about. I was very touched when Nancy Pelosi commented that she prays for Trump every day. Mm. I thought that's a, that's big news. That's a headline. That's more interesting than any other headline I've, I've seen in a while. The leader of the House of Representatives lives a spiritual life which includes prayer for Donald Trump. He was rather annoyed, I think, but, <laughs> but you know, I, I think that must that must have changed his idea of who Nancy Pelosi is a little bit. 
It's interesting, too, though. I never know what to do. I guess maybe there's a hardwired, cynical part of me that wonders when I hear politicians use the word prayer. I wonder, is this a uh, a, a, pub, a PR statement yeah. or not, you know? But I, know. I, I had the feeling it wasn't, but who knows? No, I, I, who am I to judge to know? I don't know her prayer life. I, I don't know, you know, but there's a part of me that goes, you're saying that, but are you really doing, you know, but. I was also touched when I heard Hillary Clinton talk about how important Henry Nowen's books are for her. You know, there's no points gained. There are no votes. Won. I don't think, you know, 10 people more will vote for her. Most people don't know who Henry Nowen is. But but it's it was re- refreshing. Or I had an exp- interesting experience with Nancy Reagan when she was uh, first lady. I was in Moscow. I walked. To, I went to visit the grave of Boris Pasternak, the writer, author of Doctor Zhivago, and I find lying on the grave a single orchid. And there's three o- older women sitting on a stone bench at the head of the grave, just sitting there quietly, and. One of them said, it's too bad you didn't get here a little bit earlier because Nancy Reagan was here. Well, she and her husband were in Moscow at the time. He, he, Ronald Reagan was signing a treaty. And she had just gone off on her own with, with a, a, a driver. It was not a photo opportunity. There, there were no cameras. They, that's what the women said. You just Nancy Reagan and her driver. And she put this orchid on its grave. And I, th- that kind of thing is surprising. You see an indication an indication of in intellectual and spiritual life that you didn't imagine. You had her all figured out. You knew what she would believe, what she thought, what she was interested in. And it turns out to be quite a different Nancy Regan than actually exists. It's your invention, not the real person. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about the fullness of the human and, and, and allowing and relationship. And the mystery. Right. I'd like to go back to what Kevin was saying and maybe pick on Kevin a little, but I'm picking on myself at the same time. So I want that disclaimer. Hey, you're allowed to pick on me all you want. Okay. Well, good. (laughs) Well, here, here, here we go. Um, your comment about cynicism and I know that I often am very cynical toward our political leaders of, of both parties. Um, maybe I, I reserve more cynicism for one party than the other, but, and Jim, I'm wondering, with with your many years, not only of your political activism, but your own spiritual life and your opportunity to interact with some of the amazing spiritual leaders of our generation, what advice would you have to help us bust out of that cynicism and to reseed a sense of trust or a sense of, you know, of goodwill in our lives, given that we live in a culture where the culture seems to be calibrated towards cynicism? It's a big challenge. I'm lucky about having gotten to know Thomas Merton because uh, I think more than anybody else has touched my life. He taught me a little bit about compassion and prayer. When you start praying for somebody, you're beginning to open a door. It doesn't happen quickly a door of concern about that person. And you it helps inch by inch, and it really is inch by inch. It's definitely not mile by mile, inch by inch to 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 develop a sympathy for whatever things have happened in that life, which have made this person perhaps a dangerous person. I can't think of any, you know, when I look at political leaders, I, I too am not, not without spasms of cynicism. 
but I don't find those I don't find the cynicism helpful. And I'm mostly dealing with my shadows, not theirs. In the at the 1964 uh, retreat, where um, you were at the Abbey of Gethsemane and Merton's Hermitage with other activists about pursuing the spiritual roots of protest, what would you say is the most significant thing that came out of that retreat for you? I had, you know, I come from a left-wing family. My pa- parents were both communists. Uh, they weren't fans of Stalin. Well, they, they thought they had an idea of Stalin that was quite different than real Stalin. They weren't fan- fans of state-sponsored terrorism. <laughs> they, were, they had a communism, which basically had to do with how you relate to the people around you and what you do for the sake of justice and in, in, in your own world. So in many ways, their lives were the most admirable that I've ever witnessed. I think the most important thing was realizing that the protest should have spiritual roots. It was quite a surprising theme. Merton proposed we talk about the spiritual roots of protest. And it wasn't that I was antagonistic to the idea. I just never thought of it before. Spiritual roots of protest. You protest because protest is needed. That's how it was in my family experience. My parents had been protesting since long before I was was born. you do it because there's injustice and you have to protest. And But, but to, to, to look at the spiritual roots, what gives you the courage to follow your conscience instead of follow the crowd? Mm. And how do you find, if you haven't been listening to your conscience very much, where is it located? How do you find it? What, do you, what stethoscope do you need to hear it? That, that was probably the core surprise to me in, in the discussions that we had, thinking about the spiritual roots of protest. You begin to think about conscience, that it's not, it's not the, it, it, may, it may or may not be fashionable to protest. That doesn't matter. It's fashionable, so there'll be more people there, and if it's not, there won't. But if your conscience is working, you'll be there even if you're by yourself. And that's the, that's the thing. How do you, how do you how do you find a conscience that you can and how do you pay attention to it? That's the spiritual roots of protest. Mm. We look at Franz Jägerstetter very much in that conference. Thomas Merton talked about Jägerstetter. Dan Bergen talked about him. everybody talked about him. wasn't so many people, but we all knew who he was. Austrian conscientious objector who was beheaded in Berlin in 1943, August the 9th. Had nobody to support him, nobody uh, to say you're doing the right thing. His, his wife was, to say the least, not enthusiastic about her husband getting his head cut off, but she was the only person who, who, who didn't say you're doing the wrong thing. She, that was, but after that, the bishop said you're doing the wrong thing. His pastor said you're doing the wrong thing. All the neighbors said you're doing the wrong thing. And still people in the town which he, where he was living and farming still look back at him, I'm told, with reservations. He shouldn't have done what he did. So learning to, to hear your conscience is, the big, is one of the biggest struggles in life. And I think when we talk about the spiritual roots of protest, we're talking about that. Jim, have you seen the Terrence Malick film? Yes. Uh, uh, Hidden Life. Hidden Life. Any, thought, any thoughts on that film? Do you think that oh. was? A... No, I thought I was. My wife and I went to see it in the local cinema. It still hasn't come out on DVD in Europe, so we haven't been able to see it a second time. 
I was very honored that they used uh, something I wrote about Franz Eberstetter as part of the process of putting the script together. Uh, I thought it was a beautiful, was, well, of course, Terrence Malick's films are visually so rich. Yeah. And you talk about silence. There's so much silence in a Terrence Malick film. Holy silence. So I'm, I'm very much to see it again. Every now and then I check and see if there's a DVD of it available yet. <laughs> yeah. Jim, in so much of your work, you mentioned the importance and the power of the Eucharist. And honestly, when we have been talking personally, the few times that I've, I've gotten to be with you, some of the stories you've told me has really shifted for me, just the power and the significance of the Eucharist. You write in your memoir about the vast amounts of silence that Dan Berrigan would insert into the Eucharist when he would practice the sacrament. Yeah. Would you mind sharing maybe a story of, of that, of an encounter like that with Dan? Well, and perhaps how, most, it, how it impacted you? One of the you? most important Eucharistic experiences I had with Dan happened in 1965. He was living up in the East, up in the East 70s in Manhattan in a house, in a residence the Jesuits had at that time had a kind of maid's room upstairs on the top floor. It had once been Emily Post's house. And Dan would receive Tom Cornell and myself from the Catholic Peace Fellowship once a week. And we would sit there to talk about the work of the Catholic Peace Fellowship and the war in Vietnam and what we should be doing and conscientious, all these different topics that were urgent for the work of the Catholic Peace Fellowship. But it all began with a home, with a, a simple bedroom liturgy you know, very simple, very, we use the, the basic texts, of course, but it was not something that was happening in those days to have a, a liturgy in, in your living room or a liturgy in your dining room, or if you wanted to go to mass, you went to mass in a church. So we'd come in and have this simple, very simple liturgy with Dan. And then once, one Monday, I guess it was a Monday that we did this every Monday, we uh, found Dan very down, very depressed, very, very upset. His superior had told him, "You know more of these. I know what you're doing in that room of yours. I know you're having these unauthorized liturgies, and we just do not agree that you can do that. And I'm telling you, no more of that. And you must stop." So Dan said, "We can't have a liturgy today. Maybe we said a prayer or two. And we start to go through, we have a little sandwich put that Dan has prepared and get our papers on the table to look at letters that the Catholic Peace Fellowship has received and requests and ideas for work. And at a certain point, Dan says, just holds up a hand and says, wait a minute. And he walks out of the room, no explanation. He comes back a minute later from the kitchen downstairs with a piece of rye bread and a plate, little sandwich plate opens a cabinet, a drawer in his file cabinet and pulls out a bottle of wine, puts it on the tiny little table. And then we realize we're going to have a mass. Get to the canon prayer where Dan is going to consecrate the bread and wine. And there's a long silence. And then Dan just says, may the Lord make of this what he will. I have rarely experienced the Eucharist more intimately I have no doubt what the Lord did make of it, what he will. Mm. 
And uh, it was a very helpful experience for me. I don't know what else to say about it. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. Thank you. I remember a nun, a Franciscan nun in Las Vegas, Nevada, who with a fellow Franciscan sister was taking care of refugees. And the number of, this was in the 80s, I think, number of refugees were of Jewish ethnic background and their, their Russian passports said Jewish, as, a, as Russian passports did in those days identify different nationalities. Jewish was regarded as a nationality. She had two refugee, a couple Russian refugees, former of Jewish family background, but not religious as far as she could tell. And then one of them came back from her work clearing tables at a casino restaurant in, in the city, weeping, uncontrollably weeping one night. She'd been very upset for days and days and days. And they couldn't tell why she didn't explain one evening, she just came back incoherently upset. And finally, she said, they make me throw away the body of Christ. Well, what could that possibly mean? Turned out that she found it unbearable to throw out uneaten bread. Uneaten bread was for her represented the body of Christ. She had a stronger Eucharistic <laughs> sensibility <laughs> you know, than these two Franciscan nuns. They learned a lot about the Eucharist <laughs> from this woman who just can't bear to throw, follow the law of Nevada or whatever state you happen to be in and throw the bread away. That was sacrilegious. In Russia, of course, they didn't, they didn't allow bread, bread to be thrown away. Does that make any sense to you? More sense than, uh, mm -hmm. than I can articulate, actually. <laughs> I've always been grateful for that story. Rosemary Lynch was the nun I'm especially, especially thinking of. She since died. She was the head of the Franciscan order that she was part of in Rome for years and years. And she would uh, travel all over the world, mostly in countries that are where she was mainly with very, very, very poor people. Of course, places where no bread was thrown away. <laughs> Every crust was eaten. So she was prepared. She also every year got arrested at least once or twice because she was involved in protesting the nuclear tests going on outside of Las Vegas and Nevada. Mm. This concludes part one of a two-part episode. Stick with us next week when we hear part two. We are encountering silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is CarlMcCollman.com. Please visit the podcast website at EncounteringSilence.com. There, you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit Patreon.com slash Encountering Silence. This way, you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. <laughs>